Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Quote, you give money, we give lives. That from the Ukrainian president in a plea to U.S. lawmakers. The lead starts right now. Vladimir Zelensky in D.C. first making his rounds on Capitol Hill, and now he is at the White House. His pleas as House Republicans can't agree on how to fund the U.S. government, much less a foreign war. And chances of a deal now stalled as lawmakers are sent home for the weekend. Plus, a border emergency migrants flood a Texas town crawling under barbed wire, even costing a little boy his life as his family tried to swim across the Rio Grande River. And alleged horror in a warehouse dubbed the Brave Cave. The lawsuits accusing police of inappropriate strip searches of suspects, including a grandmother. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with our world lead. As right now, President Joe Biden meets with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky at the White House. Zelensky on a laser-focused mission right here in Washington, D.C., secure more aid at all costs. Today, he is quoted as saying, if we don't get the aid, we will lose the war. Russia, even after 19 months of relentless attacks against Ukraine, showing no signs of slowing down. Just last night, multiple Ukrainian cities bombarded by a brutal wave of attacks. But those stakes in mind, Zelensky today also went to the Pentagon and held critical meetings on Capitol Hill, where aid for Ukraine is a key sticking point for some Republicans in the House spending bill, which could all lead to a government shutdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy denied Zelensky a meeting with the full Republican conference. Let's begin at the White House with CNN's Kayla Talshi. Kayla, busy day there for you. President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky are meeting right now. What do we know about this meeting? And will Zelensky walk away with anything he's asking for in terms of aid? Well, Pam, we know that President Zelensky and President Biden are going to be having a bilateral meeting. President Biden is expected to introduce the Ukrainian leader to the former Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker, who's going to be serving um, as a top diplomat to assist the country in its rebuilding and recovery effort. But of course, first things first, and that is... um, taking care of the war that is happening on the ground in his country right now. To that end, uh, Zelensky is also going to be making a presentation to the president's cabinet to give his battlefield perspective and to share more information about what Ukraine needs right now at this moment. The Biden administration is expected to announce a new aid package, $325 million of artillery, anti-aircraft and cluster munitions that the Biden administration says will help Ukraine in the near term on the ground in its counteroffensive with what it needs most right now. Notably, Pam, that's coming from an existing authorization from Congress. That is not new money. The White House has said that Ukraine needs $24 billion to be able to sustain the war from October 1st through the end of the year, and that they've already begun having conversations with Congress about what happens after that. But it's that $24 billion package 
that remains in limbo right now with congressional leaders trying to find some path forward to keep the domestic priorities funded and to keep the government open in the coming weeks. Uh, we will see what materializes, whether there can be any sort of agreement reached after Zelensky's visit today. Certainly he is making a hard sell as part of this capital campaign, uh, but one end of Pennsylvania Avenue is far more supportive than the other. Pan. All right, Kayla Talshi, thank you so much. Let's go now to Zaporizhia, Ukraine, where CNN senior international correspondent Fred Plykin is standing by. Fred, a wave of new Russian attacks last night in Ukraine underscoring why Zelensky is pleading for more funding. Yeah, and just as President Zelensky got to Washington, D.C. is when that aerial attack was unleashed. It certainly was massive in the early hours of this morning with the Russians launching ballistic missiles, but also a wave of cruise missiles at targets mostly in the west of Ukraine, but in central Ukraine as well. And the Ukrainian general staff said, look, the numbers are really staggering. The Russians using 10 nuclear capable strategic bombers launched from an airfield in the west of Russia to fire cruise missiles at targets in Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainians say that 43 cruise missiles were launched by the Russians. And thanks to some of the Western air defense systems that they've already gotten, first and foremost, of course, from the United States. They were actually able to shoot a lot of those missiles down, but a lot of them also actually made it through and then hit targets. Um, there was some civilian infrastructure that was hit, a hotel in the town of Cherkasy, where a lot of people were wounded there. There were also five killed in the town of Kherson. But what really is also concerning the Ukrainians a lot, Pamela, is the fact that Ukraine's energy infrastructure was also hit. There were big power outages in parts of the country, that uh, some of which still have not been restored. But the Ukrainians are also saying that right now, as the temperature gets cooler, fall is progressing, we're moving into winter, they fear that the Russians could once, once again launch a bombardment campaign like they did all of last winter when they essentially tried to hit critical infrastructure, uh, trying to freeze essentially the Ukrainian population into submission. So that a big concern for the Ukrainians. And I think that's also why before the meetings that President Zelensky of Ukraine had today with lawmakers and now with President Biden, he said that air defense was a big issue for the Ukrainians and certainly something where they need help. They've already received a lot of help from the U.S. and its allies, but they say they need more modern Western air defense systems to try and keep their skies clear to protect that critical infrastructure, to protect civilian centers, but also to help with their counteroffensive, because one of the big issues that they have is aerial support. All right, Fred Plykin, bringing it down for us in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you. Let's go now to CNN's Melanie Zanot on Capitol Hill. Melanie, some lawmakers there have been supportive of Zelensky's quest for aid. Others, though, he's really running into a brick wall with. Yeah, Pam, and that divide right there is why there is just so much uncertainty in Washington right now about whether Congress will approve additional aid for Ukraine. And that is despite President Zelensky coming up to Capitol Hill today and making a direct plea to members for more aid. Armanu Raju reports that during a closed-door meeting in the Senate, Zelensky said, you give us money and we save lives. He also warned that if, you, if United States was to back away from its commitment to Ukraine, that Ukraine could fall to Russia. But there still is a block of hardline conservatives who are still fiercely opposed to Ukraine aid, especially over here in the House. And that dynamic was really on full display in a pretty striking way today. Over in the Senate, you saw Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, and Mitch McConnell, the GOP leader, walking together, flanking on each side of Zelensky as they walked into the Senate for their meeting. 
But over in the House, Kevin McCarthy did not accompany Zelensky. In fact, he took some steps to distance himself from the Ukrainian president. He did not want official photos in the room, although our colleague Annie Greer did obtain some photos of him posing inside. But it just really speaks to the divide that they are facing. And you also hear it in their tone. Just take a listen to the difference in the way McCarthy and McConnell are talking about Ukraine aid. This morning I was proud to welcome President Zelensky to the Capitol. At the risk of repeating myself, American support for Ukraine is not charity. It's an investment in our own direct interests. Look, we've got to get our, our first, our uh, fiscal house taken care of here in America. I'm more than willing to look at that. But the one thing I know is if the president's only focused on that, while well, you just had 10,000 people come across the border and he wants to ignore that, I think there are priorities here. And Ukraine aid has become a point of contention in these government funding talks, which are still ongoing and just not a clear path forward at this moment, Pam. And the Ukraine aid, we should note, is just one part of this massive fight over a spending plan, right, which could lead to a government shutdown in 10 days from now. Where do things stand? So as of right now, GOP leaders have decided to send members home for the rest of the weeks after a tumultuous few days here in the House. They initially had planned to put a short-term funding bill on the floor on Saturday after they included a number of conservative priorities to try to win over hardline critics. But that was not enough. So now it's back to the drawing board, and we're told the new strategy is going to be focusing on individual spending bills. They're long-term spending bills. But the problem there is that they would need to pass 11 individual spending bills within the next nine days or so in order to avoid a government shutdown. And those bills would be dead on arrival in the Senate. And so it is looking increasingly likely that there is going to be a government shutdown. All right, Melanie Zanona, thank you so much. So the question looms, as we just heard from Melanie, how does a spending deal happen now with House members going home for the week? A Republican and a Democrat will join us with their take up next. Plus, the new details just coming in on a bus crash involving high school band students One person killed, nearly 50 others hurt. And the drama of succession playing out in real life. We'll talk about the impact of Rupert Murdoch's exit from Fox News. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We're back with our politics lead. Ukraine's president on Capitol Hill today urging lawmakers for more funding in the war against Russia. But this catfight happening among House Republicans is drowning out those pleas. By which Republicans, you might ask? Well, as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy puts it, those that want to, quote, burn the whole place down. All of this as a government shutdown looms over the country. And guess what? Sources are telling CNN that House Republican leaders just sent their members home for the week. 
I want to bring in Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York and Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey. All right, let's start there. Congressman Lawler, as we just reported, your leadership is telling members they can go home for the rest of the week and the weekend. There have been plans for some boats tomorrow and Saturday. What's going on there? Well, as you can see, I'm still here. I was just in a meeting uh, downstairs in the WHIP's office, uh, continuing the conversations. Many of my colleagues uh, are still here uh, working, discussing, uh, because you know we are nine days away from a shutdown, and we cannot afford uh, to go down that road. I have said from the very beginning, uh, I will do everything in my power uh, to avoid a shutdown, and that's why I'm still here working. Uh, and and here with uh, Congressman Gottheimer, because we need to be able to have these conversations, not just within the House Republican Conference, Mm -hmm. but on both sides of the aisle to avoid a shutdown. All right, we're going to talk more about that in a second, but Congressman Gottheimer, you know, look, your your colleague there across the aisle, uh, Congressman Lawler might still be be there, but uh, others, they might be going home. They've just been given the all clear to go home amid all of this. What do you make of that? Listen, what I make of it is... It's incredibly frustrating when the country looks at us and says, why can't you get your work done? Which is, frankly, when you have nine days to a shutdown, why yesterday and late into the evening, the Problem Solvers Caucus, a bipartisan group of 32 Democrats and 30 Republicans, we sat in a room and put together a bipartisan agreement to actually uh, keep the lights on in the government, make sure that people, our veterans, our seniors, the military doesn't suffer with an unnecessary government shutdown and keeps the country moving forward. I think that's the kind of work we need. In the, and right now, getting, letting the extremists on the far right control things makes no sense to me. I think common sense should prevail, and that's what we've been working on. All right, Congressman Lawler, you said today that uh, you're not going to be a party to a shutdown. But, I mean, what are your plans to not be a party, to prevent that? Because that's exactly the direction to which this seems to be headed. Well, as I said, I just came from a meeting. I continue to push uh, for the use of a continuing resolution to keep the government funded. I agree with many of my colleagues that we need to reduce spending. Uh, With all due respect to my colleagues standing next to me, obviously over the last two years, spending increased dramatically. I do want to rein that in. I do think that's why the American people elected a House Republican majority. But they elected us to govern, and we have that responsibility. And so I say to my colleagues on the right, Yes, we got to rein in spending. Yes, we need to work through the appropriations process, but we cannot inflict pain on the American people in that process. A shutdown will only hurt the American people, and that is what I am trying to avoid. It's why I am willing to work across the aisle to ensure a CR passes. Uh, but I will continue to talk to my colleagues in the House Republican majority uh, to impress upon them the need to work together to govern. We, we are in a divided government. The Democrats control the Senate and the White House, so we're not going to get everything we want, and we have to work together to get there. And I'll just say there's a huge difference between, and as Mike was pointing this out, between what's reasonable and what's draconian. Right. The stuff coming right now that we're, that we're reading about and the talks about what they want to do to families in this country is draconian and crosses the line. There's a place for reasonableness, and including, by the way, as we've been doing, focus on paying down the debt. Our, we've got a fiscal commission that we've, we've also suggested as a way to move forward here, because I think you want to look at long-term debt and deficit issues, but not 
hurt people, not hurt our veterans, not hurt our seniors, not cut military pay, uh, right? And, and make sure we look out for people. And there's a way to do both. And that's actually what we're proposing here is a reasonable, common sense, bipartisan way forward. And you cannot bend to extremism. And I think that's one of the big lessons uh, of right now for the Republicans, that the extremists don't want to solve problems. They actually just want to muck things up and burn the place down, as uh, Speaker McCarthy said. Well, and, and as somebody coming from New York, you know, one of the biggest crises that we're dealing with right now is the migrant crisis. And dealing with our southern border is critical. And even within this framework, we have bipartisan agreement uh, to work towards securing our border. And I think these issues are so critical and it's so important that we put aside differences and focus on solving the problem, advancing forward uh, the work on behalf of the American people, keeping the government operating, and continuing to work through uh, the appropriations process in the coming weeks to make sure that we get a budget and a bill for the American people that puts them on the right fiscal path forward. Let me follow up with you. You bring up the border. We heard uh, Speaker McCarthy today amid this visit from Ukrainian President Zelensky say, look what's happening at our southern border. How can we be focused on you know, what's going on in Ukraine when we have all of this happening at the border? But Congressman Lawler, you know, your colleague, Congressman Byron Donald, said Tuesday, that it's not a good time for Zelensky to be here and that the House is essentially broke. And I'm wondering what you think about that. What kind of message does that send to the international community? Well, listen, I was uh, proud to welcome President Zelensky here earlier today. I saw him in the hallway, greeted him, and I told him I will continue to support the effort in Ukraine. Uh, my wife is from Moldova. Her family lives about 30 miles from the Ukraine border. Uh, so this is this is personal. I mean, the reality is if Ukraine were to fall, other former Soviet satellite countries would fall with it. And we need to be resolute. Vladimir Putin is a vile dictator and thug. Uh, I have supported funding in Ukraine and I will continue to do that. And the vast majority of Congress does. Uh, yes, I, I understand my colleagues' concerns about transparency and accountability uh, in how these funds are spent. Uh, I support that. But we cannot uh, give up on this mission uh, and let Vladimir Putin be successful. The reality is polls are showing that American support for Ukraine is waning. Uh, Congressman Gottheimer, on that note, how do you convince Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck that funding Ukraine is somehow the United States' responsibility a year and a half into this war? Because if Putin wins and is able to spread his hate and tyranny across the region, as Mike was just talking about, the cost to America would be significant and the threats to American citizens would be significant. You know, we're the greatest country in the world. We can make sure we fight dictators and take care of America. And we need to do both as we have throughout our history. And, and that's what I say to folks. And by the way, they're on board. They understand Putin running wild is unacceptable. And, and frankly, we just got to keep up the fight, but also make sure we fight for them, which is exactly what we're doing right now, fighting back against the ideas of some of the extremists who say we need to actually defund security, hurt law enforcement at home, hurt our veterans, hurt our seniors, which is unacceptable. Right? And, and in our plan that we put out in the Problem Solvers Caucus, a bipartisan group, it includes support for the Ukraine with transparency, with accountability. All of those things are important. And I guess that's the big takeaway. You can do both if you're smart. You can make sure you're fiscally responsibility, responsible and invest in the things we need in our country. That's exactly what the both of us are working on. All right. Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey and Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. Thank you both for that conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Well, the influence at Fox now that the TV giant at the network, Rupert Murdoch, is stepping down. We'll discuss after this break. 
In our politics lead, a succession episode playing out in real life. Rupert Murdoch has stepped down as head of Fox, handing over the reins to his son, Lachlan. It marks the end of the reign of a man that could be credited for influencing American politics more than any other in the last decades. But it also came with a cost. For Fox, that price tag hit nearly $800 million in a settlement to Dominion voting systems for lying to their viewers repeatedly about the 2020 election. Private communications revealed in that suit that uh, Murdoch felt Trump had become increasingly mad by the end of his term and urged executives to help Republican candidates in the Georgia Senate runoff elections, quote, any way we can. So let's discuss all of this with our panel. I want to just talk about the overarching impact, uh, Kristen, of Rupert Murdoch. You know, you talk to Republican voters all the time. How would you define his influence in shaping conservatives' worldview? Well, Fox News is very influential with conservatives. And even if, you know, you say, look at the ratings of a top-rated primetime show, it'll be a couple million viewers, which is no small potatoes in TV news. But it's also a very small drop in the bucket when you think about all voters in America. What's so powerful so often about Fox's role in the ecosystem is once something comes up on Fox, it can spread through blogs, online, etc. Um, and that you've seen this whenever big talent has left Fox over the last decade, that Fox has remained strong and in that first place position among conservatives, even as big names have left the network. I'm interested in getting your perspective, Kate, because you were in the Biden White House, which clearly would give you a different perspective. How do you see Murdoch's influence and how that might force Democrats to shift their strategies? Well, I'll tell you, when I was in the Biden White House, we would make decisions about putting folks on Fox. We didn't decide that we could just write off, count out the Fox audience, even recognizing that you know most of them were not what you would call a persuadable voter. But they are they do have so much influence in the ecosystem that we didn't feel like we could just abandon uh, talking to the Fox uh, to the Fox audience. So we had to make choices about which messages we thought their audience would listen to and who and which messengers we thought they would listen to. You know, but I think overall, the the long term impact that uh, Rupert Murdoch is going to have uh, as we look back historically is he's really contributed to the undermining of a sense of faith in institutions in this country. Some of the guardrails that have historically been kind of nonpartisan journalism, you know, the courts. And I think that's a really that's a really dangerous thing. And I think that's a piece of his legacy um, that will extend beyond just, you know, this election cycle or the next that I think we will have to grapple with. Do you think him leaving will change anything at Fox now his Lachlan, his son, taking over? I don't think so. I mean, reports generally are that the network, the folks running the network, have been running the network for some time, that his son has been heavily involved for some time. And I also think that Fox has found a formula for their viewers that those viewers really like. And sometimes it's not necessarily covering something from a right perspective or a left perspective. It's about the types of stories. You know, for instance, right now, I bet if we turned on Fox, there'd be lots of coverage of a chaotic situation down at the border. That's a story that Fox viewers really care a lot about. And so uh, Rupert Murdoch, to his credit, sort of understood that there was this large audience out there in America that said, we want to see news that we feel reflects our values. They found that in Fox, even as it evolved a lot over the years. How do you see it in terms of the change in leadership of Fox changing how Democrats might deal with them? And you mentioned when you were at the White House, you couldn't just turn a blind eye to them, even though maybe these weren't people who were persuadable for Democrats. Um, How did you determine how and when to have someone from the administration appear on Fox? 
Well, anytime we felt like we were speaking to uh, somebody's kitchen table concerns, so particularly when we had people out who were talking about the Biden economic agenda, we're talking about you know what uh, President Biden and the administration were, do- was, were doing to make people's lives better around their kitchen table, we would take that message to Fox. We would also take a lot of our national security messages to Fox because, you know, despite uh, what you see in, uh, on display in the rift uh, on Capitol Hill right now, uh, you know, largely the Fox audience uh, is generally generally tends to be, uh, you know, sort of pro a strong America, pro a strong America in the world. Uh, and so we would make that argument uh, as well. But we had to think and make uh, calculated decisions about how to do that because you don't always get a fair hearing, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a certain cynicism, uh, I would argue, in the in the Fox um, ethos uh, that makes it hard to just to put the facts out there and have them resonate. So but, we would have to be we would have to be very uh, specific. About and that. I really give credit to anybody who goes on to a media outlet where they are entering sort of tough territory and they're going to answer questions that may be different than they're getting from other media outlets. I know whenever there are folks who are conservatives who go on programs that are quite progressive, that sometimes yields the best television because you really are getting a sort of interesting friction. You're getting audiences exposed to things they might not hear otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's important. They're being challenged in a way they're not going to be challenged otherwise. Exactly. And that could go, that could really be, you know, across the board. Exactly. And it's good politics. for the, it's good for the discourse. And it's in a time when people are so hardened into their camps and there are so few truly persuadable voters or people who are truly open to hearing mm-hmm. arguments from the other side. That's, it's important to do that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think as a journalist, it's important for people to be exposed to worldviews that are different from their own, right? Not just having their own views reinforced. Um, but when you look at Fox and you, you, you talk about the change in leadership now and how you don't think that's really going to change much, I mean, Fox has been through a lot lately, right? I mean, we should remind viewers uh, this is only the latest change. We've seen high-profile primetime voices from Bill O'Reilly to Tucker Carlson gone. Does that matter in terms of the messages they deliver to U.S. voters? Well, there certainly have been changes in their primetime lineup over the years. There's been changes in leadership. You know, Roger Ailes had enormous influence at the network, ran it for quite some time. Um, so there have been lots of changes, but it has always sort of been able to come back to this understanding of, like, there's this conservative group out there that really wants to hear the stories that they care about covered, that has a very clear sense of how they view the world and is looking for news that kind of speaks to that. Um, and so individual people who have been in primetime, whether it's Bill O'Reilly, whether it's Tucker Carlson, who have left the network, have often tried to find a new home, whether it's online, usually trying to build their own platform. But the Fox brand is just very strong. And the ability to draw in viewers to that means it's been a little bit challenging for anybody to leave that nest and succeed a lot on their own. But they still have prominent voices like Sean Hannity, right, Um, who we know from the January 6th committee hearings and the Dominion lawsuit was actively advising former President Trump um, and his allies as well. I'm wondering, Kate, how do you see his role now that we are in election season again. Well, this is the other piece of the of what Fox has built that can be frankly dangerous, which is the bleeding between opinion and journalism. And you know, Sean Hannity would say, "Oh, well, I'm an you know, I, I'm I'm an opinion maker. I'm not a journalist." But if he is presenting himself to his audience as an authoritative voice and not being candid about the private conversations that he's having with Donald Trump and his team, the texts back and forth with Mark Meadows then you know, that's not providing all of the information uh, to the audience in a way that allows them to make decisions about what am I hearing and what filter am I getting this through. And that's very dangerous. The melding, the, the, the uh, blurring, I should say, uh, of opinion and journalism, that's a dangerous thing. Kate Benningfield, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
Up next, new details coming in on a deadly bus crash involving high school band students. Plus, the alleged horror in a police warehouse in Louisiana dubbed the Brave Cave. That's now spelled out in two federal lawsuits. An attorney representing the plaintiffs joining us next. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese American culture and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. And we are back with our national lead. We are getting these live images from a serious bus crash in New York State, this one involving high school students. One person has died. At least 48 people were injured, three severely. Police are investigating how the bus taking high school students to a band camp overturned on Interstate 84 in Orange County. New York Governor Kathy Hochul issued this statement just moments ago, saying, We are grateful for the first responders whose speedy actions save lives, and we will continue to support them however necessary. Our hearts are with all of those who are impacted by this horrific situation. And to the buried lead, that stories that we feel deserve more attention. And a warning for you, the details here might be disturbing. This one, a second federal lawsuit alleging horrors inside a warehouse in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It is nicknamed, quote, the Brave Cave. Inside, two plaintiffs claim they strip searched by officers on a so-called street crimes unit. One says he was tortured. The most recent plaintiff is a grandmother, Ternell Brown. She claims Baton Rouge officers pulled her over and her husband back in June, and she was taken to this Brave Cave when officers became suspicious of her two different prescription pills in the same container. Well, her lawsuit claims she was held at that police warehouse for two hours and officers forced her to prove that she was, quote, not hiding contraband in her vagina or rectum. Baton Rouge police say this was a narcotics processing facility and that all operations have been disbanded and reassigned. And the mayor says an officer named Troy Lawrence Jr., deputy chief of patrol operations, has left. CNN did not reach out to attorneys for Lawrence. The police union and others named in the lawsuit for comment, but have not read back. We did reach out, we should note. Now, apparently, um, he has resigned, uh, that, that officer. I want to bring in attorney, an attorney for Turnell Brown, Ryan Thompson. Um, really disturbing details coming out of these lawsuits, Ryan. This incident with the grandmother was only three months ago. How is Turnell Brown doing? Uh, she's still uh, physically and emotionally shaken by this. I did speak with her today. Uh, again, that was something that was very traumatic, traumatic for anyone. So she's still recovering. However, all of the phone calls and the support that she received uh, keeps her in good spirits. You also represent the plaintiff in the first lawsuit concerning this brave cave, Jeremy Lee. Tell us what happened to him. Yeah, so back in January, I was contacted by Mr. Lee's mother uh, that stated that she had not spoken to her son and that she was very concerned about him. Uh, At that point in time, uh, once I was retained, I went to go do a welfare check on Mr. Lee at Paris Prison. uh, And instantly, once I saw Mr. Lee, I knew that something was wrong. Uh, There was a bump above his head. Uh, Mr. Lee complained of urinating uh, blood uh, when he was using the restroom. 
And there were also uh, physical signs of some type of uh, bruising around the ribs. Later on, I found out that Mr. Uh, Mr. Lee was taken to the hospital uh, and he was diagnosed with a fractured rib. According to Mr. Lee, uh, once he was arrested uh, at a home, he was then transported to what we now know to be the Brave Cave. Uh, says that upon entry into the Brave Cave, uh, Officer Troy Lawrence and other officers start to take off uh, their body-worn cameras. Said once he entered into the warehouse, he said he was instantly attacked by Mr. Uh, Mr. Lawrence uh, and several other officers. Another officer performed a leg sweep, and he said what transpired there was he described as a game-style uh, beating. Uh, once that occurred, Mr. Lee was then interviewed, interrogated without uh, counsel being present. Uh, at that point in time, again, he was then transported to the uh, Paris prison. Once he was transferred to Paris prison, East Baton Rouge Paris prison uh, did not admit, did not allow him to come in. He was then taken to the hospital, and that's where he was diagnosed with the fractured ribs. Wow. Uh, Baton Rouge police, for their part, say that this building has been around for about 20 years. You've said since your clients have come forward, you've now heard from others. You said you may be only scratching the surface on claims. How many people do you believe may have been illegally strip searched here? So there was a press conference that was held by Baton Rouge Police Department when we first broke the story, uh, whereby they stated that 350 people were taken to that site. I believe the year before there was maybe 650 I personally spoken to 20 people and everyone I spoken to said they were uh, strip searched in this sexual humiliating way. So at this point, I can confirm 20, but I think it's in the thousands. Wow. The deputy chief and other Baton Rouge officers said last month that they had never heard of this facility called the Brave Cave until just recently. Do you believe that? Uh, I, I want to... Um, think that all law enforcement have integrity. So I'm going to take him at his word. Uh, now, whether or not that is the truth amongst the rank and file, I don't believe that because clearly uh, an officer used this term, the Brave Cave. It should also be noted that the Brave Cave is connected to a unit that was disbanded years ago uh, through the Baton Rouge Area uh, Violence Elimination, uh, which was a federal program that was funded uh, by the federal government uh, here to address violence. So the fact that that unit was disbanded and the officer is still using the term brave cave uh, tells me that someone knew something. But I'll take the chief at his word again. He's always had been a man of integrity. But I don't believe I do believe that the rank and file knew about this name and knew what was going on there. According to the Baton Rouge Police Department officers and the street crimes unit, uh, they have been disbanded and reassigned. Are you satisfied with that response? I well. Myself, Attorney Jessica Hawkins and uh, Professor Thomas Franklin, we believe that what occurred is criminal. And so we're waiting on individuals to be arrested uh, and or bill or indicted. And so though they've disbanded the unit, I'm waiting for someone to be arrested. Uh, we did a press conference and uh, Brother Gary Chambers spoke so eloquently where he talked about the fact that the average everyday citizen, if there's a crime that an officer believes that has been committed, they're not allowed to go home. They're arrested right then and there. And I believe that at this point in time, those individuals that were uh, involved in Jeremy Lee and Ms. Brown's case should be arrested immediately with all due speed. Ryan Thompson, thank you. Thank you so much, ma'am. Have a good day. You too. Well, a three-year-old little boy drowned. Thousands of others continue to risk their lives. We are on the border to show you where the state of the migrant crisis stands right now. 
International lead, the humanitarian crisis developing on the U.S. southern border. We are learning today that a three-year-old boy drowned yesterday afternoon after being swept away by the Rio Grande River, currently trying to cross with his family near Eagle Pass, Texas. The current, I should say. That's according to the Texas Department of Public Safety. A U.S. Homeland Security official tells CNN 8,600 migrants have been arrested crossing the U.S. southern border in the last 24 hours. The White House will deploy an additional 800 troops to assist the growing surge after the mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, declared a state of emergency. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us now live from Eagle Pass, Texas. So, Ed, you've been watching this crisis unfold at the border in real time. You've seen this kind of thing happen before. Why the surge now? Well, that's the question that many people are trying to figure out. I can tell you in our reporting throughout the course of the day in speaking uh, with the migrants who we witness cross over hundreds and hundreds at a time today, many of them uh, tell us and many of the ones that were crossing here in Venezuela, uh, the vast majority of them were from Venezuela. So those that those are uh, people who've been, and they told us they've been waiting on the Mexican side of the border for several months in many cases as they tried to go through what is known as the CBP-1 app. And basically, this is an application process that allows migrants to set up an appointment to present their asylum case. Many of these migrants have been telling us that they have been waiting months and months to get through, and a sense of desperation is setting, setting in. That's why you're seeing these massive numbers in part uh, show up here uh, on, the, on the American side of, of the river, uh, creating a great deal of uh, headaches for uh, the Border Patrol agents, state authorities, and the local uh, officials who are trying to uh, be able to cope with the amount of people here that are arriving. But by and large, what we're hearing from the migrants uh, who say that they're, they're tired of waiting, uh, that there's a sense of desperation setting in, and they just wanted to get across. It's just awful. I mean, how dangerous the conditions are. This little three-year-old boy drowning, it reminded me of that horrible... Uh, situation a few years ago where you had the dad, the Salvadoran migrant, and his toddler drowning there. You spoke to a group of Venezuelan migrants today attempting to cross that river. Tell us more about what you're seeing. Why are they taking these risks? Well, if you see the, the, the razor wire you see behind me, that group of migrants that we saw uh, basically just crawling underneath, a couple of them had figured out a way to lift up the wire, and that allowed uh, that group that was st- spent hours waiting on the edge of the river there to get in. This is all unfolding as state authorities, Border Patrol agents were standing there waiting for them to get through, and then they were taken into custody. Many of these people, in fact, it was kind of a, a surreal scene at one point. The first man that came across, he stood up and instantly apologized to the United States for entering illegally. But but as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's really this, this sense of desperation uh, and they are willing, and these migrant cells, they are willing to take their chances with the immigration process here. And if that means they'll be deported, then they'll, they'll deal with that. Uh, but they'll, it's almost like they've gotten to the point where they're tired of waiting and they want to push along in, into the system to see what may or may not happen for them. And you've also spoken to local law enforcement. What are they telling you about this current influx? Well, we spoke with the local sheriff here in Eagle Pass, who's very concerned about how all of this is happening. And, you know, and there is a great deal of organized crime on the other side. And that's why you see uh, predominantly vast numbers of 
Venezuelans arriving here on the Mexican side of the border from Eagle Pass. That, you know, that's not by accident. And so a lot of these, uh, the, the sheriff is very concerned uh, that there are bigger forces at play here, smuggling operations that will prey on these people once uh, they are processed and given uh, the paperwork needed to be able to stay in the United States. And they said they've been seeing um, uh, smuggling operations and people coming here to Eagle Pass to move these migrants to other parts of the country. So these are the, di the different types of uh, issues and concerns that law enforcement that we've spoken with here say they have at this moment. Ed Lavendera, thank you so much from Eagle Pass, Texas. And here in D.C., the stakes are growing higher with just nine days to fund the federal government before a shutdown. Yet lawmakers appear to be leaving, sent home for the weekend. What well, we are learning about negotiations or lack thereof coming up. In our sports lead, the first medical doctor to play in the NFL is retiring. Laurent DuVernay-Tardif announced on Instagram today that after nine years in the NFL, he will be stepping off the field. The 32-year-old offensive lineman was in his third year of medical school when the Kansas City Chiefs drafted him. And while playing, he continued his studies, returning to Montreal in the offseason to work in the hospital. When he was on the field, he helped the Chiefs win their first Super Bowl in 50 years back in 2020. Only months after the Super Bowl win, DuVernay Tardif was the first NFL player to opt out of the 2020 season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, choosing instead to return to a long-term care facility in Montreal. Well, a big interview is coming up next week right here on The Lead. Jake Tapper will sit down with Cassidy Hutchinson in her first interview with CNN. She was a top aide for former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She was also that star witness for the January 6th committee who gave damning testimony about Donald Trump's actions on the day of the Capitol attack. Jake's interview with Cassidy Hutchinson is next Tuesday. Again, you can see it right here on The Lead. Well, be sure to follow me on Instagram at PamelaBrownCNN or write the show on X at The Lead CNN. I'll see you tonight on Anderson Cooper 360 with a special investigation. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.